Hi, writers. Welcome to a new episode of our podcast on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Let's return to dialogue as our topic today. Dialogue is fun to write and fun to read. It's fun to read because dialogue allows readers to be in the room or on the horse or lost in the forest or in the spaceship's control room or in in the Paris salon a hundred years ago or wherever else our characters are and to listen in on them. It's as if the reader becomes part of the story, overhearing conversations. And here's a funny thing. Ever notice that ever notice that when you are flipping through a novel's pages at a bookstore, maybe trying to decide whether to buy it, your eye usually stops on a page of dialogue. Dialogue with all its all the space remaining on the page is inviting to the reader's eye, more so than big chunks of solid narrative. And dialogue is fun to write because usually our character's dialogue is less structured than other aspects of the novel. Even though dialogue is a construct, not a transcript sounding like real conversation, even though it is a construct, many writers find it easier to write, even fun to write. The back and forth, the snappiness, the humor, and how dialogue reveals our characters by their own words. I want to mention a funny topic first, but an important topic. Avoiding verbal tics in our dialogue. Tics. T-I-C-S. The recurrent behavioral trait. Uh, Not tics. T-I-C-K-S. The parasitic arachnid you might get burrowing into your skin while walking in a forest. My father was a wheat farmer, and once in a while he'd have to remove a tick from his arm, and it was an ugly process involving a piece of thick paper and a match. But I digress. The other day I was at a Starbucks sipping tea and otherwise minding my own business, and one of the baristas, a young lady who had had a voice that projected, was speaking with the other baristas. The place wasn't crowded, uh, giving her time to chat with her workmates. The coffee shop was too small for me to not listen, try as I might, sitting in the farthest chair from the counter. She was speaking English, but she had a patois that to my ears made her conversation unbearable. It was something like this. This is her talking. I was like, when should I, like, come to work? And he was like, when you can get your car fixed. So I was like, that might, like, take a couple days. And he was like, not upset or anything. I, like, really like uh, him being my, like, manager. So I was like, thanks, Jerry. <laughs> this is no exaggeration, or not much of one. I could tell this was a nice young lady, but her conversation to my ear set back human culture half a millennium, and this topic of verbal tics jumped into my head as I sat there drinking my tea. Listen to this dialogue I wrote 
as an example of bad dialogue because it's filled with verbal tics. This is the kind of dialogue we writers should avoid. Frankly, Smith said, I think the bank has too many, you know, security guards. Well, can we uh, distract one of them? Actually, the old fellow near the counter, to tell the truth, is usually asleep on his feet. Jones rubbed his jaw. Um, well, he has a pistol in his holster. I doubt, you know, I doubt he knows how to use it. Uh, still, it's a loaded gun, you know, Smith said. Well, I don't think we, well, uh, should go into the bank when both guards are there, honestly. You aren't, you know, chickening out on me, are you? Well, Jones said, to tell the truth, it sounds, um, dangerous. Smith leaned back in his chair. Well, do you have a better plan? Well, I've been thinking about it, Jones replied. Well, let's hear it. Oh, it hasn't been worked out fully, Jones said. Well, we'll need a third person, a driver, you know. Well, who can we get? Jones said, oh, I don't know. How about Kenny Rogan? He seems um, to be a stand-up guy. <clears throat> Isn't this awful? It's a weird thing. What works in real conversation in our everyday lives often doesn't work in fictional dialogue. We read a different way than we hear. Our reading eyes work differently than our listening ears. What's awful to our eyes isn't to our ears. I suppose if your character is a teenager, some likes might be part of the dialogue, but maybe not. Your fictional teen should be smarter and smoother than a character who fills likes and likes and likes. What should we do? Don't write them. Leave them out. And if you've already written some or all of your novel, use Global Search, that's Control and F pressed at the same time, and look for actually, honestly, well, uh, that's U-H-O, <laughs> which is O-H, um, U-M, frankly, man, as in man, that is fun. To tell the truth, and other meaningless words and sounds meant to make the dialogue sound real, but which don't do that and are irritating to the reader. So in most circumstances, leave out those bumps in the dialogue. The reader won't miss them, and your dialogue will be much smoother. Let's talk about how to weave together dialogue and narrative. Dialogue mixed with narrative. How do you do it? There are a couple definitions of the word narrative, but by narrative here, I mean everything we've written in our novel or story that is not dialogue. Good dialogue flows well, so when we have two characters or three talking back and forth, should we interrupt them to put something else in, say, uh, describe the setting or describe action that is occurring or give some background or explanations. If you do, won't it break the flow of the dialogue? 
But if you don't, won't the novel begin to sound like the, the movie My Dinner with Andre or a stage play? There's no simple answer to how much continuous dialogue is enough or, or when to interrupt it with other aspects. Some writers use a lot of uninterrupted dialogue. Jack Higgins, Raymond Carver, Ann Tyler. Other writers use dialogue separated by chunks of narrative. Uh, Toni Morrison, Eudora Welty. So what are our choices? What are the options? There are, of course, an infinite uh, variations, but they come down to this. One, mostly uninterrupted dialogue. Two, dialogue slowed but not stopped by bits of narrative. And three, dialogue brought to a halt by blocks of narrative. I want to offer examples of how writers weave together dialogue and narrative and how differently they do it. Let's mention first dialogue that is mostly uninterrupted by anything. This is from Irwin Shaw's novel, Bread Upon the Water. Notice the two pluses of uninterrupted dialogue, fast pace and readability. It's swift and it's easy to read. Here, here Shaw is building up his characters. The, the character Strand, his name is Strand, and his son are having breakfast together. You look positively gaunt. People will think we never feed you. Have you eaten anything today? I only just got up a couple hours ago. I'll do justice to Mom's dinner. What time did you get in this morning? Jimmy shrugged. What difference does it make? Four, five, who keeps track? Sometimes, Jimmy, Strand said, a touch of irony in his voice, you must tell your old man what you do until five o'clock in the morning. I'm searching for the new sound, Jimmy said. I play or I listen to music. I understand they stop the music at Carnegie Hall well before five o'clock in the morning. Jimmy laughed, stretched. Carnegie Hall isn't where it's at this year, haven't you heard? You have purple rings under your eyes down to your shoulders. The girls love it. This dialogue flows without distractions. We learn about their relationship and something of what Jimmy does. Here's another example of largely uninterrupted dialogue from Bernard Cornwell's novel Sharp's Triumph. Dialogue is a first-rate place to give the reader information. Uh, maybe some backstory, maybe explanations, because the information is leavened by the back and forth of the characters talking. Notice what uh, Bernard Cornwell is doing in this dialogue, giving a lot of information. Uh, the word he uses, escalate, is, is, I had to look it up, it's a word for climbing a wall with ladders. He's giving a ton of information here, and there are only 167 words. Information about the enemy who are called the Maharatas, or Marathas, about their own hired troops, the Arabs, about the commander, Arthur Wellesley, about the tactics they'll use to take the fort, ladders over a wall, and about their specific mission, which is to capture Dodd. I've read the novel. Cornwell isn't just dumping information here to show he's smart. This information is important to the novel, but it's palatable because it's in conversation, and it's mostly uninterrupted dialogue. Here it is. 
Escalates can work well against an unsteady enemy, the colonel went on. But I'm not at all convinced the Mahrattas are shaky. I doubt they're shaky at all, Sharp. They're dangerous as snakes, and they usually have Arab mercenaries in their ranks. Arabs, sir, from Arabia? That's where they usually come from, McCandless confirmed. Nasty fighters, Sharp. Good fighters, Savanji intervened. We hire hundreds of them every year, hungry men, Sergeant, who come from their bare land with sharp swords and long muskets. Doesn't serve to underestimate, underestimate an Arab, McCandless agreed. They fight like demons. But Wellesley's an impatient man, and he wants the business over. He insists they won't be expecting an escalade, and thus won't be ready for one, and I pray to God he's right. So what do we do, sir? Sharp asked. We go in behind the assault, Sharp, and beseech Almighty God that our latter parties do get into the city. And once we're inside, we hunt for Dodd. That's our job. Notice how smoothly this quick back-and-forth dialogue gives us a lot of information, and yet it's, it's fun to read, and it's, uh, it catches the eye on the page, too. That's mostly uninterrupted uh, uh, dialogue. A second option is to intersperse dialogue with narrative. If you do this well, you can keep up a fast pace almost as well as setting out pure dialogue. Here's a key. The dialogue and the narrative should reinforce each other, not compete with each other. What do I mean, uh, reinforce each other? It doesn't mean that the dialogue and narrative both say the same thing. Rather, both add new information. But not all kinds of information carry equal weight in moving a story forward. Here's an example from Claudia Bishop's mystery, A Taste for Murder, where Quill and John are breaking into a suspicious warehouse. Notice that the dialogue includes only two or three exchanges between the characters before being interrupted by an, a stretch of action. Yet the reader's attention isn't split. Action and dialogue each add new information. Here's Claudia Bishop. Moonlight leaked through the open ventilation shafts in the roof, picking out the cab of a semi-truck and four Thermal King refrigeration units. John took her hand, and they made their way carefully across the floor. If anyone comes in, John said very quietly, roll under the cab and stay there. Quill nodded. These things are locked, aren't they? How are you going to get in? There's a maintenance door under the roof. Give me a leg up. Quill crouched down and cupped her hands together. John put his hands on her shoulders, stepped into her cupped hands, and sprang up. Quill staggered back. He was unexpectedly heavy. She waited, searching the darkness. It was quiet. Too quiet. Quill bit back hysterical giggles. Time stretched on. Suddenly, a dark shape appeared at the back of the unit. Adrenaline surged through Quill like a lightning strike. Safety door, said John. You can open the units from inside once you get in. God, said Quill, did you find anything? A low growl cut the air. Quill's breath stopped. John grabbed her hand. The growl rose, fell, and turned into a snarl. The dog's back, said Quill. Oh, hell. John thrust her behind him. 
Quill could smell the rank, matted odor of an animal neglected. John flattened himself against the metal unit. That's Claudia Bishop. These pieces of dialogue give the scene a nice three-dimensional feel. The reader is experiencing the scene several ways, through dialogue and through the action that accompanies it. Uh, Often new writers, when crafting an action scene, forget about adding dialogue entirely, maybe because they are concentrating on getting their characters safely from one place to the next, and the writer forgets the characters would be expressing something during the action. You can even have a character who is alone say a few words to herself. Not too many words, because it begins to sound gimmicky. Dialogue during action is especially effective when there are quite a few characters in the scene. The spoken words can make the scene feel alive. Here's an example from Stephen King's novel, Bag of Bones. King is describing a carnival and writes the scene so it's part dream and part reality. The protagonist, Mike, moves between the two in his mind, reality and actuality, while navigating the carnival. He runs into Kira, the young daughter of the woman he's falling in love with, and they stand watching the Red Tops, a singing group, when Kira notices that a lady on the stage is wearing her mother's dress. (laughs) Isn't that creepy? Uh, Isn't Stephen King good at that? Listen to what King does with the dialogue as Mike and Kira try to make their way out of the carnival. I've deleted some of the narrative and some of the dialogue to shorten it, but the flavor's still here. Listen to Stephen King go back and forth between action and dialogue. Why is the lady wearing Maddie's dress, Kira asked, and she began to tremble. I don't know, honey, I can't say. Nor could I argue. It was the white sleeveless dress Maddie had been wearing on the common, all right. The reader watches the action for a few more paragraphs. Then, the crowd roared happily. In my arms, Kira was shaking harder than ever. I'm scared, Mike, she said. I don't like that lady. She's a scary lady. She stole Maddie's dress. I want to go home. King moves into a number of paragraphs of narrative and action about the lady on the stage. It's It's scary stuff. And then the scene is off and running. Here's King. Right or wrong, I'd had enough. I turned, putting my hand on the back of Key's head and urging her face against my chest. Both arms were around my neck now, clutching with panicky tightness. Stephen King then describes another part dream, part reality character. And then, excuse me, I said, brushing by him. There's no town drunk here, you meddling son of a bitch, he said, never looking at me and never missing a beat as he clapped. We all just take turns. Mike and Kira keep moving, dodging around three drinking farmers until they're free of the crowd. Uh, Some more dialogue as they head home uh, toward the street and almost home. Almost done, Irish, Sarah shrieked after me. You sounded angry, but not too angry to laugh. You're going to get what you want, sugar, all the comfort you need, but you want to let me finish my business. Do you hear me, boy? I just stand clear. Mind me now. That's another half-crazy character, Sarah. And then Mike is carrying Kira, and they begin to move faster. On our left was the baseball pitch and some little boy shouting, 
Willie hit it over the fence, Ma. Willie hit it over the fence. With monotonous, brain-croggling regularity. Are we home yet? Key almost moaned. I want to go home, Mike. Please take me home to my mommy. I will, I said. Everything's going to be all right. In this from Stephen King, I omitted some of King's action, which occurs between dialogue. The dialogue gives the feel of many things happening at once. As Mike passes and runs into various characters and tries to comfort the girl, all while trying to get her away from the carnival and take her home. Uh, without this dialogue, it, if it had been one chunk of, of narrative, the scene would have felt stagnant, as if it were standing still. This dialogue, uh, mixed in with the action, gives the scene a wonderful momentum. We've talked about scenes that are almost all dialogue and scenes that are part dialogue and part narration. A third option is a scene that is mostly narration with uh, short lines of dialogue inserted here and there. I advise against this. Big paragraphs of narration will likely make the reader's eye jump to the next line of dialogue. Readers love hearing characters speak. How does the author know where to put the dialogue and where to put the narrative? It's sort of intuitive, and and the author probably doesn't think a lot about it. But if you are aware of the technique, uh, inserting action into dialogue and dialogue into action to advance the story may come naturally to us without a lot of thinking. I read The Darndest Thing. I had heard that Ray, Bar Ray Bradbury used word association games when plotting. I hadn't read more about this, but I have come across his essay, Ray Bradbury's essay, titled Just This Side of Byzantium. Uh, it's quoted uh, in the introduction to his old novel, Dandelion Wine. This is Ray Bradbury. Listen to how he plots, how he invents plot. This book, like most of my books and stories, was a surprise. I began to learn the nature of such surprises, thank God, when I was a fairly young writer. Before that, like every beginner, I thought you could beat, pummel, and thrash an idea into existence. Under such treatment, of course, any decent idea folds up its paws, turns on its back, fixes its eyes on the eternity, and dies. It was with great relief, then, that in my early twenties I floundered into a word association process in which I simply got out of bed each morning, walked to my desk, and put down any word or series of words that happened along in my head. Ray Bradbury continues, I would then take arms against the word, or for it, and bring on an assortment of characters to weight the word and show me its meaning in my own life. An hour or two later, to my amazement, a new story would be finished and done. The surprise was total and lovely. I soon found that I would have to work this way the rest of my life. That's Ray Bradbury. It obviously worked for him. 
writing down random words when he got up in the morning and then filling them out for a story. That's not how I come up with a plot. I have to pummel it together and think a lot about it and make sure things make sense and and that the story moves forward. My way doesn't sound as much as as much fun as Ray Bradbury's way. But we do what works. I, I hope you have found what works for you when inventing your plot. We've arrived at the end of this broadcast. I'd like to hear from you if you'd send me a message. My address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. That's my name and my city at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.